Church family, I'm glad that you're with us this morning. I want to invite you to find your Bible, have it with you there. We're going to refer to it several times and look at several passages of Scripture together this morning. But we're beginning a new sermon series entitled Above Every Other. And it's a focus on the names of God, especially from the Old Testament. I find that people have more familiarity with the New Testament than they do with the Old Testament. But God revealed himself through the Old Testament in a lot of different ways. And his names, his specific individual names, is one of the most telling ways that he revealed himself. When I think about knowing God, when I think about him revealing himself, I always think of this quote from A.W. Tozer. I want to read it to you. It says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is what deep in his heart he conceives God to be like. And that is so well said. A.W. Tozer was a man who was, I guess you would describe him as being preoccupied with God. He spent hours a day alone in the presence of the Lord, meditating on God, thinking about God, reading God's word. He was driven by this passion to know God personally. And so if you read any of his books, you'll find just a a lot of depth and richness there because of his time that he spent with God. I read the book for the pursuit of God when I was just in high school and it had a profound effect on my desire to seek the Lord, to seek to get to know him. So I encourage you uh, as we think about the names of God to begin to understand and think about his identity and think about what Tozer said. It's the most important thing that we ever think about because everything flows in our life out of whatever it is that we believe God to be like. One of the most dramatic changes that happens in our life after we trust Jesus as our savior is the change that comes about in our view of God. Oftentimes we have an incorrect view of God. It comes from either empty religion that we grew up attending a church of, or maybe even from the adults who are in our lives, their view of God often is what we pick up as children and young people And we take that on as our own view of God. And it's not necessarily biblical. It's not necessarily who God has revealed himself to be. So I wanna challenge our thinking and I wanna go to the Bible itself to begin to challenge our thinking about this idea of who God is. Now, one of the things I will say is that all of us have this basic, we come naturally to it from our sin nature. We have a basic distrust of God. It's the epitome of our sin nature. And so all of us, once we meet Christ, once we know the Lord is our savior, we kind of have to go through a rewrite of who we believe God is. Instead of the old ideas that we have, we have to allow the word of God to penetrate our hearts and minds and change who we understand him to be. So go back to Genesis, to the beginning of man, to the beginning of creation. And what you see in Genesis three is the story of the first temptation. You really see the beginning of distrust between humans and God. And in verse number one, it says, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, no, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows when you eat it and your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. And so you know the rest of the story. Eve saw that it was delightful to the eyes and she took it and she ate it and she gave it to Adam and he ate it. And in that moment, 
the seed that of doubt and distrust that the serpent placed in her mind was that God was somehow not who he had shown himself to be, but that he was actually someone that you shouldn't trust, that he had an ulterior motive, that he had a bad motive. And that's the first time that Eve had ever thought about that. Well, maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe if I eat this fruit that looks as good as all the other fruit in the garden, maybe God knows that I'll be just like him, that I'll be equal to him. And that sort of describes the human condition from that day until now. People are trying to equal themselves to God. People have a distrust of who God is. Maybe even in your own interaction with people, as you try to share the gospel with them, probably that's an attitude that you've heard, that you've encountered. It is with me that people have a distrust of religion and they have a distrust of God because they have wrong ideas about who God is. What does distrust do to every relationship? Think about your own personal relationships. What does distrust do to a marriage? What does it do to your relationship with your kids? When you find out as a parent that one of your children has lied to you about something or tried to deceive you about something, especially the older they get when they know better, it does something to your relationship. When I used to work with kids and parents would come to me and, and they would say, well, my teenagers say to me, you just don't trust me, mom, and I wanna trust my kids. And sometimes kids will use that against their parents because they know that parents wanna trust their kids. And I'd always say the same thing. You have to earn trust. You have to be trustworthy. And the moment that you break that trust, then you have to earn that trust back. Well, just like in our personal relationships, trust destroys interpersonal relationships. Distrust destroys uh, our relationships with God, our relationship with God. It, it destroys that interaction that we have with him, especially if we believe that he's guilty of something that he's not guilty of. So I think about that and I think that when we come to this idea of knowing God, of interacting with God, of having a personal relationship with him, we have to address that idea, is God trustworthy? And we know in our heads sometimes that he is, but in our experience sometimes we question that. And so this idea of knowing God is a way of dealing with that trust or distrust issue. You know, Israel had the same problem. God constantly was confronting the Israelites all the way through the Old Testament about their distrust of him, their disbelief in what he would say. And all through the prophets, that's why I love to read the prophets because they expose the heart of God. You read Isaiah or Jeremiah or Hosea or, or countless others. And they're talking about this idea that God is critical of the people of Israel because they don't know him. He's saying, you don't really know what I'm like. And because you don't know what I'm like, you tend to react to me in the wrong ways. You respond to me in the wrong ways because you think I'm this way and you don't actually know what I'm like. So that first generation of Israelites, remember them, they had interaction with God. They had personal experience. They had seen God do miracles in front of them and they had that experience. And then they were supposed to pass that on to the next generation and tell about the wonderful things that God had done so that the next generation would know what God was like <clears throat> because God revealed himself to the people of Israel through his dealings with them. That's one of the ways that he did. He also revealed himself to them through his various names. And so over the next few weeks, what I want us to do is, is go into some detail and look at what the Old Testament particularly says about these different names of God. Now, I should stop and ask you a question related to what I just said, and that's this. Is there anything more important that you could teach your kids before they leave your home than to really have a right and correct understanding about who God is? Well, you know the answer to that's no. But so many times as parents, I think we let go of that gift that we can give our kids too easily. Why do parents need to seek the face of the Lord? Why do they need to seek his identity? Why do they need to know who he is? 
Because if you don't really know who he is and what he's like, then you're gonna project to your kids an incorrect view of God. And then they're gonna carry that view of God into their future. But on the other hand, if you as a parent are spending time with the Lord, if you're growing in your relationship with him, if you're allowing the truth of his word to change the way that you view him and know him, and you know him personally, that's gonna impact your kids in an amazing way going forward. So I think about that and I think what a great gift you can give your kids to be able to share with them. The bigger story really of the Bible is the idea that God is revealing himself to human beings all through the Bible in various ways, from the beginning of the book to the very end of the 66 books in Revelation, he's revealing himself. He's showing us what he's like. In fact, Jesus said this to his disciples uh, their last night together on earth before he died. He said in John 17, three, that this is eternal life, that they may know you. He's praying right now and he's talking to God, but he's talking to God in front of his disciples. And he says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and the one whom you have sent, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus sums up eternal life by saying, this is eternal life that they can know you. And it's not a knowledge that's a head knowledge. It's not a, a detached sort of fact-based knowledge. It's not just theology, it's personal intimate knowledge. That's what the word means in the original language. And so since everything in our life flows out of our understanding of who God is, we have to press in to know him. One of my favorite books related to this subject is the book entitled Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And at the beginning of that book, Packer talks about uh, some ideas that came from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher of a previous generation over in England and was an amazing preacher and man of God, he wrote a lot of books. He had a lot of great sermons that people refer to. But I want you to listen to this quote from Spurgeon related to this idea of knowing God. He said, our aim in studying the Godhead, which is the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, must be to know God himself the better. We must seek in studying God to be led to God. It was for this purpose that revelation was given and it is to this use that we must put it. How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God. It's that we turn each truth we learn about God into a matter of meditation before God, listening and leading, I'm sorry, the prayer and praise to God. So that, Spurgeon said a lot there, but basically what he said was, as we take our understanding from the word of God about who God is, we take it into the presence of the Lord and there we meditate on it. And people really struggle with that idea sometimes. Well, I'm not isn't meditation part of the occult? Isn't meditation part of Eastern religion? There are forms of meditation that are, but David talked about all the time in the Psalms about laying on his bed and meditating on the Lord. And that's a biblical idea. That idea of how do you actually think and cause your mind to be disciplined enough to think specific things. So here's how Spurgeon went on to define meditation. He said, meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works, the ways, the purposes, and the promises of God. So think about that. I've heard people refer to meditation uh, as this idea of regurgitation, that you just bring it back up, you bring it back up, you bring it back up, and you keep thinking about it over and over and over again. He goes on to say its purpose, meditation's purpose, is to clear one's mental and spiritual vision of God. In other words, to get the wrong ideas out of the way so that you can actually see God as he is and to let his truth make its full and proper impact on one's mind and heart. 
It's often indeed a matter of arguing with oneself, reasoning oneself out of moods of doubt and unbelief into a clear apprehension of God's power and grace. Now, I've had that experience in my life, haven't you? Where a truth comes into my life from God's word and I don't feel it. It it doesn't bear truth from my experience, but I see the truth on the pages of God's word. And oftentimes for some people, that is a subject that uh, like relates to the assurance of salvation. So many people struggle with whether or not they're really saved because they don't maybe feel it. Well, it's not a matter of whether you feel it or not. And sometimes ministers will get up, preachers will get up and they'll say, well, if you don't feel saved, you're probably not saved. Well, that's not true. It's not about whether you feel it. It's not about an emotion. It's about what the word of God says. And so there are truths like that. God's love is another one of those truths. Does God love me? I don't feel like he loves me or I haven't done something that's deserving of his love. And then when you understand from scripture that it's not about whether you deserve it or whether you feel it, then that truth comes into your life and you think on it. And oftentimes you do exactly what Spurgeon says here. You have to argue with yourself. You have to say, well, what's true? I don't care how I feel, what is true? And you use reason to work through your feelings to bring yourself to the place where you go, I'm gonna stay in faith. I'm gonna believe this regardless of how I feel. And what's amazing is our feelings always end up following what we believe in, what we put our trust in and what we say is true. So I think he's absolutely right. This idea of meditating is taking something that seems untrue about God because it's so amazing and actually saying, no, that is true. And then allowing that truth to sort of permeate everything else in our lives and the way that we think and the way we relate to other people. Too many of us, I'm afraid today, are living off of the experience of other people. We all listen to podcasts from people that walk with the Lord and know the Lord. Some some of you love to watch Tony Evans or listen to Tony Evans or or Matt Chandler or Louis Giglio or somebody else, Paul David Tripp. And those men all love the Lord and they all have their own personal experiences, but that could never replace your own time with the Lord, your own knowing of the Lord as a believer in Jesus Christ. We can learn from those men, certainly. You can learn from a sermon like this morning, but it's not enough. That's not enough to replace the important thing of sitting before the Lord as Spurgeon talks about and actually taking in his word and allowing it to clear our view of God, often arguing with ourselves to get us to the place where we go, no, I'm gonna believe the word of God regardless of what I feel right now. So in the next few weeks, we're gonna look at some of the names of God from the Old Testament. And some of these will be familiar to you, but the great thing about the names of God is they give detail to the character of God. They help us to know something very specific about who he is that then helps us to react to him and relate to him in the proper way. I I want you in the weeks ahead to take these truths and do exactly what Spurgeon talked about. Take them into the presence of God, let them lead you to God and then work them out in God's presence. Pray to him, talk to him, argue with yourself about what you believe and what you wanna believe and what's the word of God say about his character. God wants to be known. There's no question about it. And he's been revealing himself since the very beginning and he uses his names to do that in a very specific way. So these truths are not just meant to be discoveries, though they're gonna be some new discoveries for you. But like we always talk about, those discoveries turn into things that we own in our lives, that we apply to our lives. That's that arguing sometimes. And then they turn into concepts in our lives that we then use to influence other people. When you understand who God is, it will transform you. It will change you. And it will change the way you love people. It'll change the way you interact with people. Your spouse will see it. Your kids will see it. Your friends will see it. They'll know there's something different. They'll know like the people knew about Jesus' disciples that they had been with the Lord. And when you know the Lord in a right way, it transforms your life. And that's 
that's the whole point of this is that you would ultimately know the Lord and love him more with your whole heart, mind and strength. So this morning, I just wanna introduce two ideas, two names of God that are found in the Bible way back at the beginning of the Bible and help bring some clarity to you as you think about who God is. The first of those names is the name Elohim. That's probably a name that you've heard before. Elohim is the name of God that you find in Genesis 1-1 where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Now, what does Elohim mean? Well, it means powerful, it means supreme, it means sovereign. So God's all powerful, he's supreme. In other words, there's no God above him. He's the highest being in the universe and therefore he's sovereign. He's in control over everything that he wants to be control over or control of at any given moment. He is powerful, supreme and sovereign. So when you go back and think about Genesis 1-1, it makes total sense. In the beginning, Elohim, the powerful, supreme and sovereign God created the heavens and the earth. That's logical. It's not hard to imagine that because you go, yes, if he's powerful and he's supreme, there's no one above him and he is sovereign. He's in control of all the elements that it takes to bring creation into existence. That's who he is. But in your English translation, it just says God. And that's fine, but that doesn't bring a lot of detail to the idea of who God is. So when you read the entire first chapter of Genesis, everywhere that it uses the word God or the title or the name God, it's the name Elohim. So one of the things you could do as a family this week is actually go through and read Genesis 1, which accounts for all creation or the first seven days of creation. And you could go through each day and actually, because the name God is mentioned a bunch of times in there, you could just read through that together. Let your kids do this with you. And instead of saying God, when it comes to the name God, use the name Elohim. And then beside Elohim, every time you mention God, just like I did with Genesis 1-1, say Elohim, powerful, supreme, and sovereign. Because what are you doing in that moment? You're bringing detail. You're bringing uh, clarity to the character of God for your children. Now they can read it and they can read the name God and they may think all those things when they read the name God, that's fine, but they may not. And God revealed himself in this way specifically so that we would understand him in that way, that he is powerful, that he is supreme and that he is sovereign. Now, I love this because Elohim is actually plural in its form here. And what does that mean? How could God be plural? Well, we know God is Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We also know, because John said this in John 1, 1 through 3, he says, in the beginning, which we're talking about in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So John looking back says, Jesus and the Holy Spirit they were there. Elohim is plural. So God was always Trinitarian. God was always three in one. Isn't it comforting for you to know that in the very first verse of the Bible, you see a savior and you see the spirit of God because that's who, the whole, that's who God is. That's the Godhead, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're all there at creation. And so the first verse of the Bible, you see that God's already thinking about providing, even before the foundation of the world, providing a savior for you and I so that we could have a relationship. God's revealing himself. He's revealing his power, his supremacy, and his sovereignty through creation. So I want you to think about that. The idea of the greatness of God, of Elohim, okay? Second name is this, the name Yahweh. 
Um, Yahweh was first introduced, and you may be familiar with that name. In fact, some people actually use the word Jehovah because Yahweh originally in the Hebrew language had no vowels. The Hebrew language doesn't have any vowels originally, so it's all consonants. So it's an impossible language to speak. It's guttural, it's noises basically. Uh, but Yahweh was the name that God used to describe himself in greater detail. And uh, later on, when people transposed that into English, they, they created the name Jehovah. Part of that too was that Jewish people, they would often say Lord because they didn't want to use his name in vain. They didn't want to break one of the 10 commandments in Exodus 20. And so they wouldn't even say the name Yahweh. It was too holy, too sacred. But but he didn't say they couldn't use their name or say his name, I'm sorry. He just said, "Be you reverence my name, use it with holiness. Don't, don't use it flippantly and don't use it in vain. And so they kind of took that to an extreme. But Yahweh was the name that God used to describe himself. And in Exodus three, you first see God introducing himself to Moses as Yahweh. And this is what it says in verse three, or chapter three, verse 13. Here's what's going on in this passage. God has just shown himself to Moses while he's out in the wilderness in the burning bush. And he has said to Moses in that moment, I wanna free my people from Egypt. I wanna deliver them from bondage, from slavery, from oppression. And I wanna take them to a wonderful place in Canaan and give them a land that will be theirs forever. And I want you to lead them. And this is Moses' response in verse 13 of chapter three. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am, Yahweh. That's the name. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am Yahweh sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, Yahweh of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. So if you and I are alive, we're part of every generation. And what God was saying way back in Exodus was, I want you to know my name. So Yahweh, what does Yahweh mean? Well, he says, I am that I am. And that's this idea of self-existence. People often say, well, you know, we believe in intelligent design and I do too. I think when you look around at the earth and creation, you can't help but say that someone designed the intricacies of creation. But when it comes to God, you say, who created God? No one. God's self-existence, he's always existed. We say, how do you know that? How can you trust that? Because that makes sense. That makes the rest of everything in life make sense. Yes, as Christians, we believe in one big, bold miracle, God. In the beginning, Elohim, we believe that. And we can't explain where God came from, we don't have to. And people who don't believe in God also start with faith because they can't explain where all the things that blew up and created their Big Bang Theory came from either. At the very beginning of that, they have to say, I don't know where that stuff came from, but I believe it was always here. Well, I would rather believe in God because God makes more sense in terms of looking around the world and seeing creation in order and thinking there had to be someone who created that. But God is self-existent. So this idea of Yahweh is self-existent, personal, and present. Isn't that beautiful? So with Elohim, you have the powerful God, the God of creation who makes the earth and forms it out of nothing, out of complete nothingness. He makes all that we see around us. He's powerful, he's supreme, and he's sovereign. And then he reveals himself to Moses because Moses has to go to the people and say, well, here's God, God told me to say this to you. Well, who, what's God's name? God's name is Yahweh. God's name means self-existent, personal, and present. 
In other words, he's going to go with us. And did he not prove that as he walked with them all the way from Egypt through the wilderness, ultimately to the land that he gave them? Yes. And that's a beautiful thing. So you see these two ideas about God. So if you go back, this is interesting. If you go back and read Genesis 2, where he talks about all the different ways that he carried out creation, because he says he, yes, he made the heavens and the earth and he made the earth. And then it says in chapter 2 that he caused the dew to rise up and uh, to water the earth. He planted a garden. He put the man and the woman or the man at that point in the garden. He uh, commanded them not to eat of anything, not to eat of the tree of knowledge of fruit and evil. They could eat the rest of the trees. And he said to them, as he looked around, he said that it was not good. He also created the animals and gave Adam the responsibility to name them. But he said, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he then created the crowning jewel of all creation. He created woman. And all those times in chapter two that he talks about what he did personally the garden, the watering, the man, the animals, all those things that were provisions for the man, ultimately even Eve, all those were done by Yahweh. So in chapter one, you see Elohim. In chapter two, you see Yahweh. So it's a beautiful thing. I said, well, a minute ago, I said, well, we first see Yahweh introduced in Exodus three. Well, that's because Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. And as he looked back, he said, wow, Yahweh was there even at the very beginning. Yahweh, who is I am, who I am. He was also the one providing personally for all the things that human beings would need. So when you think about that, as you study God's word, I challenge you and encourage you as you go through the word of God and you read the title God or the name God, that you do some study, that you actually look that up to figure out which name is being used there. And you say, well, how do I do that? Well, one of the things we're going to start this next week is we're going to relaunch the Extra Point podcast each week. And I'll record that this next week. And one of the things I want to talk about with you is how to have some tools that really help you specifically know how to look those words up so that when you read God's word, you can know if he's talking about himself as Elohim or as Yahweh or something else. Because what you'll see is these two names basically serve as the basis for a lot of other names he's going to add on to these. So there's places in scripture where he talks about Elohim and he puts another word on the, another name on the end of it to bring even greater detail to that. Or he uses this name Yahweh and he adds on to that more detail at the end of it. So in the weeks ahead, we're gonna study that. But I wanted you to have as a basis this morning, this idea of those two basic names of God and what they mean and, and the, the distinction between the two. So it's these two ideas of, of God's transcendence, his power, his supremacy, and his sovereignty, and then his eminence, the fact that he is here He's present, he's personal. He does personal things for us. He interacts with human beings and loves us. And so all the way through scripture, you see those two things. And one of the things I would encourage you to do this week, if you have a chance, is to go back and like, for example, read Psalm 19. The first few verses of Psalm 19 talk about Elohim and it says God. And then it starts to talk about Lord God in verse seven, all the way through the end of that chapter. And it's talking about Yahweh. So oftentimes you see these two ideas all, the, all through the scripture together because they don't cancel each other out. They just give us more detail as to who God is in our lives. So this morning, I want you to think about that. Think about those two concepts. And as I said earlier, what I wanna challenge you to do is take some time. Like right now in our lives, we're social distancing and we're sheltering in place and we're home. And you probably have more control over your schedule right now than maybe you've had in many, many years. You're at home with your family. You guys are there and, and uh, you've got a lot of time every day to sort of figure out how to fill. Let me encourage you to do something as a family. 
One of the things you can do related to what I talked about earlier is set aside some time every day for a family quiet time. Maybe you're already doing that, but just have a time, pick a set amount of time that's right for you and the age kids that you have. Or if your kids are really young and they can take a nap, then do it while they're taking their nap. That's fine too. But set your media aside, put your phone away for a little while and, and your computer and the TV, turn that off and just turn some worship music on. And each of you go find a spot in your house and spend some time just thinking about those two concepts, those two names this week. Read scripture, look up what those, where those names are used throughout scripture. Go back and read Genesis one and two and see the difference. Read Psalm 19, as I just talked about, and talk and show the differences between Elohim and Yahweh because they're both God. They're both our great God. And then do exactly what Spurgeon said. Spend some time meditating on that, chewing on that, arguing yourself maybe out of moves of doubt and then applying that to your life. How does that change my life to know that God is all powerful and supreme, but he's also personal? Those two ideas kind of encompass the idea of God's majesty, his greatness. And you see it all through scripture. But again, take the time and then come back together at the end of that quiet time and talk together and let each other share what you've discovered about who God is and, and the amazing things that God has done because you will be richer for it. God will use that in your life in an amazing way. One of the things Jesus said when the disciples asked him how to pray was he said, pray like this, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name or some translations say, your name be honored. And, and, and the name of God is very important to God and it should be very important to us because it identifies him to us. It shows us what he's like. So I hope in the weeks ahead, as we take these different names and we study them, that they'll bring greater clarity to you in terms of who he is and what he wants to do and accomplish each of our lives. Now, if you're watching and you don't have a personal relationship with the Lord, I wanna encourage you this morning to consider giving your life to Jesus Christ. Jesus said about himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He said, no one can come to the Father unless they come through me. You can't have a relationship with God any other way being religious, trying to be morally good or not be bad, none of that'll get you to heaven. Living in America, anything else, there's no other way. He said, the only way to get to God, to have a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ, through himself. Because Jesus came and died on the cross and then rose again to conquer death, to be your sacrificial um, atonement, to make you one with God, to get you back at one with God. And so this morning, your sin has separated you from God. But Jesus Christ came to basically remove the sin from your life, to take that away, both the power of it in your life and the penalty of it, so that you don't have to pay for your sin. You can be forgiven and you can have an eternal relationship with, with the Lord this morning. So if that's you, I just wanna lead you in calling on the name of the Lord. If you would like to trust Christ as your savior, how do you call on the name of the Lord? Well, he knows your heart, he knows everything. One of the things you're gonna discover as we talk about the names of God is how much he knows about you how much detail he understands about your life. And so this morning, the Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I just wanna lead you through a time of calling on the name of the Lord. So if you wanna just bow your head or keep your eyes open and don't bow your head, whatever works for you, but if that helps you not be distracted by your surroundings, then I wanna encourage you just to pray to the Lord and just say something like this. There's no magic words, but this expresses your trust. Dear Lord in heaven, you just say that to him. I know that I'm a sinful person and I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've sinned against you. I want Christ to come into my life. I want him to save me. God, forgive me for every sin in my life. 
Help me to walk with you. Help me to know you like we talked about this morning, to have a good relationship, a close relationship with you. I pray in Christ's name, amen. So if it's you this morning and you put your trust in Jesus Christ just now, I wanna ask you to do something else and that's tell somebody about that. So if somebody invited you to watch this this morning, then please text them or call them and let them know. But if that's not the case and you just tuned in on your own, then you can do something very intentional this morning. You can take your next step. What is your next step? Your next step is to tell someone that you just put your faith in Jesus Christ, to tell someone who can encourage you, who can help you. That's why the church is here. And so you can do that very simply by texting next step one to 555-888 and someone will get in touch with you from our church and just offer to help you, to help you take your first steps as a Christian to know what to do next. And maybe that step for you is gonna be baptism or maybe it's something else. And so we wanna encourage you in that. Maybe you've been attending for a while, you've been watching our services online and you wanna connect with a group of people who are like-minded, who do life together and share their faith together and build community together and are just there for each other. We have a lot of groups like that at our church. They're called connect groups and maybe that's your next step. And so when you text that next step one to 555-888, someone will get in touch with you and you can just tell them, I wanna be part of a connect group. And no, we can't meet in person right now physically, but we're doing a lot of those group meetings by Zoom and on video conferencing calls and things like that. So there's an opportunity for you even right now to get plugged in with other believers and get to know them so that when we are able to come back together, you'll already have some friends and people to connect with here at our church. Thank you for paying attention to God's word. And I wanna ask you just to pray for your own hearts as we study God's word in the next few weeks and think about his name and his identity that we could all know him and love him to the degree that he wants us to. Thanks for tuning in this morning.